Hey guys, wanted to invite you to the Awaken Conference, Memorial Day weekend, May 23rd through 25th in 2020. We are bringing it back. Thousands of young adults are gonna gather in this city, Dallas, Texas, to be a part of a weekend where we awaken to the movement you were made for, which is the church. To be a part of that weekend, to find out all that'll be involved, you can go to awaken.live and sign up. You don't wanna miss it and we hope to see you there. Phoenix, Tulsa, Austin, Houston, Fayetteville, Philly, wherever you are joining, and especially friends here, we are kicking off a brand new series tonight on the book of Esther, one of the most unique books in all of the Bible. So if this is your first night, you chose a great night to come, because we're about to open up this book that is like a, uh, if Game of Thrones, uh, The Bachelor, and Princess Diaries had a baby, that would be the book of Esther. So it is about to go down in here. Hey, uh, let me start by uh, sharing a little bit about me, and it'll give us some tracks of where we're going. My team would say that I am a little bit of a germaphobe. Like, I, uh, I like to keep Purell around me all the time. I, uh, if you are sick, I don't want you to come into work. Don't be a hero. I'm not impressed by how tough you are. You're just being selfish, and you're getting all the rest of us sick. Yesterday, I was writing this message and, uh, and I feel like, you know, all the coronavirus has only made everybody a little bit more like, <coughs> uh, excuse me. And um, I was at Starbucks and it was like everywhere that I went in this Starbucks, I switched seats three different times because I kept sitting next to people who were like, <coughs> and you're like, dude, what, this, what are you doing here right now? You should be home. And now all of us are going to be sick because of you. And then I switched seats and I sat right next to a guy and people just like don't know how to cough appropriately, like cough into your arm or into your hand or into your shirt. Don't just let it out there, people. And then I went to the, the restroom and somebody told me this recently, and I, I went to go like wash my hands uh, in the midst of working on this message. And, um, and they didn't have paper towels. They only had the air vents. And somebody this past week told me that if you wash your hands and you blow dry your hands, you might as well not even wash your hands because it just circulates all that air and blows all the different things, bacteria and germs that are in the air on there. So I'm like, dude, I'm toast now. And, and just <laughs> thinking I'm for sure, you know, going to get out of here and get sick. And um, I find myself in those moments going like, man, I just wish I could see the germ presence here. Like I wish I had, you know, uh, microscopic eyes that would allow me to know like, oh man, I can see those things flying through the air right now. Or someone who sat in this chair before me, don't sit in that chair because that is the flu chair. If you could go over here and just an ability to kind of see, because you know it's there. You know that they're all around you but you can't really see where all these different germs are. This is going somewhere, by the way. I'm not just getting this off my chest. <laughs> and, uh, and I wish I had, you know, the ability to almost see that microscopically, the presence of something I know is there, but I can't really see it in the moment. And the reason I start there is because I think that for me, a lot of times I feel that way about God. And here's what I mean. Like, I know that he's present and I know that he's at work, but I just can't always see exactly how he's at work and what he's doing behind the scenes, if you will. I can't always see, like, uh, maybe for you, it's in, in a dating relationship, and you're wondering, like, man, is this person the person that God would have me move forward with? Or maybe for you, it's a career or job, wondering, like, God, did you just open up a door, and you want me to walk through that door? And is this you working here? 
Sometimes when we look back in life, we're able to see like, man, I just think that was a God thing. I think he was in all that, and, and I'm sure he had me live in that dorm room, you know, back then next to that person because this was going to happen. But in the moment, it's really hard to see. And I can find myself wishing like I just knew or I just wish I knew what God was up to. I know he's there. I know he's at work. But I just wish I could see what I can't see. And the book of Esther was a message to the people of Israel that even when it looks like God is hidden, you can rest assured he's working. It's a book that really, uh, the reason I say that is throughout the entire book, there's something really interesting. It's one of two books in the Bible that never mentions the name God. It never talks about prayer. It never talks about God. It never foreshadows even extra spiritual things or supernatural, if you will, things in terms of how we often think of miraculous things, but it clearly showcases the providence or the hand of God moving the pieces around and God working and moving the hearts of people, the locations of people, and directing the lives of people. The name Esther even means hidden. It was a message that was given to the people of Israel to know confidently, even when you can't see God in the forefront of him at work, you can know he is at work and is working things for his purposes all around you. And so tonight, we're going to start and look at the first couple chapters in this book, chapters one and chapter two, where we can begin to trace some of the ways that you and I can know, hey, this is where God is at work. Tonight, we're going to talk about some of the areas that you can know here is some of the ways that God is at work. And for us to dive in, i got to do a little bit of like, here's some historical lessons so everybody put their thinking cap on to get a little refresher on what exactly is going on. So Esther, Esther is the main character in the book. The entire thing takes place in the Persian Empire, like 500 years before Jesus was around. So here's, here's like what the Old Testament is about. If you don't know anything about you know, faith, religion, Christianity, here's, here's what the Bible. Bible, two parts. First part, Old Testament. Second part, New Testament. First part, Old Testament, is about God's relationship with the people of Israel. He had something called a covenant, which is a relationship that he had with this nation called Israel. And he basically said, hey, if you worship and follow me, it's going to go really well for you. If you worship foreign gods, which, by the way, are not real, but if you worship them, I'm going to let you be ruled by foreign rulers. So worship me, things go well. Worship foreign gods, they don't, and you'll be conquered by foreign rulers, or I'll give you over to foreign rulers. In this period, the nation of Israel had rebelled against God. They were not listening, so God was like, hey, I told you this is what's going to happen. You're basically in timeout. And he sends this empire called the Babylonian Empire. Okay, this is going somewhere. They come in, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. You may have heard the story of Daniel and all that, but it's in the book of Daniel. And basically, he comes in and he's like, hey, I'm now the ruler of you guys and the rest of the world and this incredible kingdom. And he would do something really interesting. When he would go in and conquer, he would basically take the best of the best from a city. So he goes into Jerusalem, says, I want top 10%. If you're in the top 10%, you're coming with me. Top 10% in looks and gifts, intelligence, any arena. You're coming with me. And he made them slaves. So they lived underneath this, and God was like, I told you, you need to worship me. It goes well. You worship foreign gods, you're going to have foreign rulers. But the people didn't listen. They conquered, and they had slaves taken back to Babylon. So then things are going along, and this Persian king, so a new empire comes on the scene. And the Persian empire comes in and dominates the Babylonian empire, and they're like, hey, I'm the new ruler. And a guy named Cyrus is basically the ruler of the kingdom of Persia, sets up the biggest empire the world had ever seen, takes out Babylon, and he's, he's the most like chill leader we're told in the Bible. He, we're really told he was a good king. Something kind was said about a foreign pagan king. 
Didn't know God, but something nice was said. And that he allowed anybody who was slaves, he was like, I don't believe in slaves. You guys can go home if you want to. So anyone who was exiled to Babylon could go home. And the Persian Empire began. And inside of this, there was a Jewish person, uh, a part of the family named Mordecai, and a girl named Esther. And they were some of the exiles that were allowed to return home, but they'd been there in their families for decades and decades. They were like, this is the only home I ever known. I'm living here. And the story of Esther takes place inside of this time frame. The Persian Empire, so today we're going to look at inside of that story, where this takes place is in modern day Iran in a capital called Susa. It was the capital of the Persian Empire at that time. And we're going to be introduced to really three characters tonight that are important for the story. So the first one would be Xerxes. For this, think Jake Gyllenhaal. Here he is, Persian king. He's the most powerful. There he is. Looking good, Jake. P90X, man, he's been working out. He, uh, he's the most powerful. Here's what you need to know. Xerxes, a real story. This is a true thing. Hey, he was the most powerful man on the earth, was the wealthiest person that had ever, uh, he'd accumulated riches upon riches. He conquered the known world in, by his 30s. He ruled over from Ethiopia all the way to India. He was just an incredible presence. Pagan king, did not know God, but that's who he is. So you think Jake Gyllenhaal. That's the first character in our story. Then we got our girl, Queen E, Esther. Who do you think of when you think of here? Bella Hadid. Bella Hadid, this could be, if the guys do not know who this is, I'm confident because I don't know who it was, but she's apparently a model, famous for taking pictures of herself. And this would be kind of who you think of in this kind of Persian beautiful queen. She wins a beauty pageant. We'll see that in just a second. And then her uncle is the one who raises her. So his name was Mordecai. He brings up this orphan girl uh, named Esther, or Bella. And uh, for uncle, Who's the most classic, iconic uncle of all time? There he is, Uncle Jesse, okay? This is Mordecai. These are the three characters in our story, okay? Everyone follow me? So there's the king. He's ruling the land. He rules millions and millions and millions of people. He's over everything. You don't mess with the king. Then there's this peasant orphan girl named Esther who's being raised by her uncle Mordecai. And so we're going to first dive in and look at the king. I'm going to just play the movie and walk through chapters one and two with you. And then we're going to look at three takeaways of how you and I can see and know where God is at work around us. So I'm going to start in verse one of chapter one. And we will dive in. Now, these events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces, or you could think nations. Stretching from India to Ethiopia, at that time, Xerxes ruled his empire from his royal throne in the fortress of Susa. That's the city. That's the capital. In the third year of his reign, he gave a great, or he gave a banquet for all of his nobles, or royalty and officials, and he invited all the military of the Persia and Media, as well as the princes and the nobles of the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days. A tremendous display of the opulent wealth of his empire and the pomp and splendor of his majesty. So we're told that Xerxes, first thing we're told is he gathers together this celebration and party. He gathers all the royalty from all the different provinces. If you're anybody important, you're coming and all of the military commanders and generals, all of you guys come together, we're going to have a party. And ain't no party like a Persian party because we're about to do this for six months and they go crazy for six months. They're just having like an ultimate kegger and, uh, and they're partying in the city of Susa. That's what's taking place. And this is going on and, and uh, eventually at the end of that time, and here's why he was doing that. We know that shortly after this took place, 
he would go in and attempt to conquer Greece. It was the only area of the world, known world, that he hadn't conquered. And you may have seen the movie 300 or heard of that movie. He's about to go do that and try to conquer Greece. So he wants to get all the boys together and show them how much wealth he has, how much fun he is, and how you hang with me, it's gonna go well for you, so let's party. And for six months, they throw a party. At the end of that six months, sends everybody home, and he's like, man, I just like threw a huge party, and this city hosted thousands of people that came in from out of town. Let's throw a local party just for the city here, not for six months, but for seven days. So he throws a seven-day party, and at the end of the seven days, here's what happened. Oh, and during that seven days, there was only one rule, verse 8. By edict of the king, so this is the only rule for that feast, no limits were placed on drinking. So it is an open bar. You can have as much as you want. Don't listen to anybody who tells you, I think you've had enough. For the king had instructed all of his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. This is not something the Bible is encouraging. It is just telling you what happened. At the same time, Queen Vashti, so there's his queen, not Esther at this point, Vashti, was giving a banquet for all the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was high in spirits because of the wine, which is a nice way of saying he was drunk, he told the seven eunuchs, uh, a eunuch is the most unfortunate character in this story. <laughs> eunuch was somebody who the king castrated to watch over his women. That's a bad day when that happens. But he, was, he had seven eunuchs. There were lots of eunuchs throughout the story. And he says to his seven eunuchs uh, who attended him, Mehumane, Bizda, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, who I'm just reading their names because because they need some dignity here. And uh, <laughs> to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted all the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a beautiful woman. But when, the, when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious and he burned with anger. So seven-day parties going on. He's hanging out with all of his boys. And he begins to do what guys do whenever they had too much to drink. And they begin to talk dumb. And so he's like, hey, dude, have you seen how hot my wife is? Have you, uh, dude, she's the hottest wife around. You, you think Carl's wife is hotter than my wife? You kidding me? No, my wife is the hottest. Hey, somebody go get my wife right now and tell her to come in here. And scholars believe that when he said that, he wanted to show off her figure and beauty. And so when he says, and tell her to come wearing the crown, it may have been the reason she said no, because he said, tell her to come wearing only the crown. Again, this guy's not a good dude. And, uh, but she basically responds and says, no, the king gets furious. And so then he's left with a problem of, man, you just embarrassed me in front of all of my boys here. And so he turns to the young men around him, and he's like, what should we do? And, uh, you know, then it's like this big frat party going together, like, get rid of her. She's not good enough anyways. And so he's like, that's fine. Let's get rid of her. When they conveyed, oh, I'm sorry, so if it pleased the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, verse 19, a law of the Persians and the Medes that cannot be revoked. It's your order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of the king, Xerxes, and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. Chapter 2, verse 1. But after Xerxes' anger had subsided, he began to think about Vashti. 
So he follows their instructions, gets rid of her. I'm going to find a new king. And then he finally calms down and kind of wakes up the next day, not hungover, and he realizes he just made a law that he can't reverse, that he's no longer married to this woman, and he's like, but I need a queen. I need a girl. And he begins to think about her, and his boys around him know that. So those young men around him, verse 2, suggested, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each province, so each of the 127 provinces, to bring these beautiful young women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Haggai, the king's eunuch in charge of the harem, will see that they're all given beauty treatments. After that, the young woman who most pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. This advice was very appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect. This is crazy that this is in the Bible. You see what just happened? His guys were like, do what young, dumb, drinking too much guys do, and they're like, you know what we need? We need some chicks right now. That's what we need. And so here's what we should do. We should do like the Bachelor Persia meets uh, Miss Persia competition, and we're going to go to all the provinces, get the most beautiful women that they are. We're going to take them. We're going to bring them here, make them beautiful for a year, we're told later, and we're going to come together, and they're going to sleep with the king, and whichever one the king wants to sleep with, that can be his wife. Again, this is not something that the Bible is encouraging. It's a really terrible, like at this point, if you're reading it, uh, especially as a dad reading this, you're like, oh, no, uh-uh. I'm like, this feels like the time, God, where you should show up and kill somebody. You did it earlier in the Bible. Why don't we do that right here? And uh, because it's just like, this is not a good dude, not surrounded by good dudes. It's not condoning it, but it's telling us the path of which the story that we're about to see came about. And so they go, they gather, and they get together all these different women. We're told by a historian at the time that it was 400 women that they bring in to the king's harem. And then there's a scene change as they're collecting and gathering these women, and it says this. So inside of the movie, there's a scene change. We're introduced to our next character, Uncle Jesse. At that time, there was a Jewish man in the fortress of Susa whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a descendant of Kish and Shimei. His family had been among those that King Jehoiachin of Judah had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. So it's just saying, it's just pointing out the fact that he was among those exiled. And though he was released to go back to Jerusalem, he and the next woman we're introduced to stayed in that city. This man had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai, adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. So uh, we're told a couple things about Esther. One, she was an orphan. Two, she had two names. She had a Jewish name and a Persian name, Hadassah and Esther. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other women, were brought into the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed into Haggai's care. Haggai is like the Chris Harrison of this story from The Bachelor, if you know who that is. He's like the dude who's like, bring all the ladies here. Sir, I'll get them ready for you, and, and you can decide from there. Again, I just lost all of the guys on there, but <clears throat> he is the one who's over. Again, he's a eunuch, and he's over preparing and making sure all of these guys are ready. And we're told something happened in his interactions with Esther and him. Verse 9, Haggai was very impressed with Esther. Your translation may say, Esther found favor in Haggai's eyes. And he treated her kindly. 
He quickly ordered a special menu for her, provided her with beauty treatments, and he also assigned seven maids specially chosen from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. She's given special treatment and special favor from this guy who's overseeing her. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality that she was Jewish and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. And Mordecai was afraid her Jewish faith you know, may hurt her chances or just impact um, you know, what happens to her. And so he says, don't share your faith with anyone. Verse 12, then we're told from the author the rules of the competition that they're about to be a part of. Before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, this dude is such a dirtbag, she was prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments, six months of oil of myrrh, followed by six months of special perfumes and ointments. When it was time for her to go to the king's palace, she was given a choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wants. She wanted to take from the harem. That evening, she was taken into the king's private rooms. The next morning, she was brought out to the second harem where the king's wives lived. There she would be under the care of Shahagaz, like a first century rapper, the king's eunuch, <laughs> in charge of the concubines. She would never go to the king again unless he had especially enjoyed her and requested her by name. So anyone in the competition, here's what the future you have. You either win in your queen or you spend the rest of your life either as a concubine that has no interaction with the king maybe, or he calls you whenever uh, he essentially wants a booty call. And that's the path you're gonna have. You can never marry anybody else. It was a law that you sleep with the king, you don't get to marry anybody else. And yet the king decides, I'm gonna do whatever I want, whenever I want, and Esther is taken. We're told that she's taken. In other words, it likely wasn't that she volunteered to be a part of this, but she was taken and was made as a part of these women. Esther was taken to the king after a year of preparation. I don't know if that like excites the girls in this room, like you get to go to the spa for a year, or if that feels like you're getting ready to be a bridesmaid for a year with people like messing with your hair and getting makeup. But it's some mixture of the two of those has taken place. And after a year of that, Esther's ready, and it says this. She was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign. And king and the king loved Esther more than any of the other young women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and he declared her queen instead of Vashti. So she goes in, sleeps with the king, and uh, God turns the heart of the king to love her more than anybody else. He says, the competition is over. I found the girl, Queen Esther. Puts the crown on her head. She's declared the queen. It's a crazy story. It's a story that, it looks like anything but God being at work. And yet, when you look and you see all the different ways that God was clearly turning people's hearts, positioning people in specific places, he was clearly at work. Because here was, here's what just happened. Esther was just placed to the position of queen. And she's now in prime placement to become the savior of the nation. And that's going to happen in a few chapters later. It's the ultimate rags to riches, where she goes from riffraff street rat to now she's in the palace and she is at the right hand of the king. In the midst of all this, God clearly is at work and the book was written so that the people of Israel would know even when it seems chaotic and out of control, you can know that God is at work. The first thing I just wanna talk about that we learn from this passage is that God is at work even when it looks like he's not. 
God is at work even when it looks like he's not. Not just when it kind of looks like God's at work always. When it looks like this doesn't feel like anybody's at the wheel, God is absolutely at the wheel and he's moving the pieces around and he's bringing about his purposes in spite of people who don't know him, don't work with him, don't live in the direction that he's called people to live. This would look, I mean, think about the story. There's a king, he gets drunk, he decides like, hey, I want my wife to come in here and you know, dance around for us a little bit, and she won't. And he's like, well, screw you. And then he does a beauty contest, and 400 people come, and this drunk, anger king ends up marrying this Jewish girl who sleeps with him and has sex with him before they got married, and she marries a non-believer. It's not the type of scenario where if it happened today, where people would be like, dude, that's clearly a God thing. Wow, that's, I mean, this is synonymous with like Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton thing where people are like, dude, that feels like an answer prayer to me, huh? It's like, what? And yet, God was clearly at work that he brings about and despite all the ways that this king was not uh, living in a way that God would condone, God was clearly saying, I'm gonna move all of these things around for my purposes because I'm always at work even when it looks like I'm not. God is working through and in the midst of, at a high level and in the details of each one of our lives. Like he's in control no matter what's taking place in the world around us. He's at work even when it looks like he's not. It's the message of one of the big themes of the first two chapters. He's at work through every authority that's been placed in our world, whether that's in terms of whoever, you know, primaries today, whoever's elected president, who's ever in a Senate, the, a leader of a foreign nation, he's over and moving all of those. He's over all of them. And he's at work and he's bringing about his purposes even when it doesn't seem like or even when we can't see it. Scripture says, Romans chapter 13 says that every authority has been established by God, both good and bad. Romans chapter 13, verse one and two says, for all authority comes from God. Think about this. Those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. Anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and they will be punished. Wait, wait. Did you just say that every authority, like my boss, who's a total jerk, was placed there by God? Yes. The president who sits in the White House right now was placed there by God. The president who will sit there in 12 months is placed there by God. Is God always in fan of every single action that every president has ever done? No. But he's over and he uses all of that and every shortcoming because there hasn't ever been any perfect president and there hasn't ever been any perfect leader anywhere. And yet he's over and moving all the different pieces around for his purposes to take place. Is the Bible saying that, hey, if my authority, my boss, my, someone over me is asking me to do something that is sin or contradicts God's word, I need to do it? No. Because then there's a higher authority involved, which is God. And we have to decide or have to say, hey, look, you're asking me to go to a strip club for work and you're just saying that's what you do. That's not what I do. That's not what I think is right. And I can't do that because of my faith. And so if that means I lose my job, that's okay. I trust you. I trust God in the midst of that. But every authority, it says all of it, he's moving all of the different pieces around. God's at work even when we can't see it to bring about things. And sometimes you're like, you just see how despite tragic things that happen that God didn't cause, He's clearly a part of it, or he clearly brings about good in spite of it. Like, you guys know the Holocaust, like, which happened in World War II, and just the tragic atrocities happening that happened through the Holocaust of millions of Jewish people losing their lives. You know, one of the things that was a clear fulfillment of prophecy that happened after that 
The nation of Israel was given a land, a location. In other words, as a result of that, nations got together and were like, we should give these guys a place they can go to and gather. And the nation of Israel was formed after hundreds and hundreds of years of not having a nation. I don't know if you know that. It's not like it's, look up Israel 1938. Doesn't exist. Happened after World War II. And despite all of the horrificness of that, God moved the things around and he fulfills a prophecy that they would be established having a land. And he brings that about. In the midst of all the different evil, because you can be left with the question of like, God's at work when it doesn't look like it. Why doesn't he step in and stop more evil in our world? Stop more suffering that takes place. Like why doesn't he stop school shootings or terrorism or viruses outbreaking? And to that I would say, how do you know he's not all the time? Every single moment that there isn't an outbreak of utter evil is because God holds it back at bay in a world that's full of evil and brokenness and chaos. That every moment there's not a school shooting is a moment he stopped it. And every moment there's not a virus that's exploding and breaking out is a moment he stopped it. And yet in his sovereign will, there's times where it allows, but we're not told why. We are told that he will allow even the worst of circumstances to be used and brought about for good. And I don't know how he's gonna do all of that with certain things, just to be candid. And any answer I would give you right now, it's not gonna satisfy you. Certainly it doesn't satisfy me. How do you reconcile sexual abuse, God? How is that a part of your sovereign plan? Why would you even allow that? And I don't know. You know, the divorce that has ripped apart my family's home and my family and just all of the different pain that was caused as a result of you know, my father having an affair or whatever your story is. How do you reconcile and make that good, God? And I don't know. But we're told in Ecclesiastes chapter three, even the worst of things, verse 11, God will make beautiful in its time everything. There's gonna come a day in a moment where you look and the worst and most broken things that he allowed, he didn't cause. But when you're... When you were the victim of some painful moments like that, I don't even know that the difference matters. It still happened. And we're not told how, but we are told that when everything is made new, there's gonna come a moment where we make everything beautiful and woven together in its time, even the worst of things that you experience. It's, it's like this. Here's a, a bunch of random kind of ingredients that are up here that, in and of themselves, are, are no one would want to eat. Like, this is a bunch of flour. Like, you wouldn't want to eat a cup of flour unless you're on Fear Factor and there's money on the line or something. Or, uh, or like, butter, unless you're just doing some bulletproof coffee. Or eggs. No one wants to, like, go eat eggs unless you're Gaston or, like, an uber CrossFit guy in here. Or vanilla. Like, things that in and of themselves, you're like, man, I, did I lose a bet I have to eat that stuff? It doesn't taste good at all. Well, what's crazy is when you take all those different things and you put them together in the hands of a, a baker, you make something that just made people be like, ooh, <laughs> that tastes amazing. These things that in and of themselves, they, they don't taste good at all. Like you couldn't pay me to eat that. And then you put them in the hands of somebody who's a gifted baker and they make something that tastes delicious out of it. That's what the scripture says, whether you believe it or not. That's what it says. That Hey, there's going to come moments where it's like, dude, this is flour. This is what I'm walking through right now does not taste right. But it promises that God, there's going to come a moment where he makes everything beautiful in its time and all of it woven together for good, for yours 
and mine, if you know and love God, it promises. And even when it doesn't look like he's working, he is. Second thing that we see in this text is that God is at work in the details. God is at work in the details of life. That God is bringing about his plans and his purposes through the details of his, her life and your life. You think about her, she's in the city of Susa, which is not like any other. She could have been in any city in the, in the kingdom. She finds herself in the capital city. She's at work through her beauty, the way that she was made, like the way that she was formed and put together. God was sovereign, and he was over all of that and weaving it together. He was over Haggai, remember Chris Harrison, having favor with her. He was over the king, having favor with her. And he is over the details of your life. He is at work. He's bringing it about and he's sovereign over the things that are taking place inside of your life. We're told in Scripture that he's sovereign over how you are made. That's the color of your skin, the way that you look, that he formed everything about you, the personality that you have. In Psalm 139, verse 13, it says, God created and knit you together in, his mother, in your mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 says, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Think about that. Every hair on your head, numbered. That's the level of detail to which God knows you. We're told that he's sovereign over the places that you live. Proverbs chapter 16, verses eight and nine says, we make our plans, but the Lord directs our steps. Like you think it's random you live in Dallas or you think it's like a curse you live in Dallas, or I don't know what you think, or wherever you live that you're listening in. Like, you think like, oh man, it's just, I didn't even get the job that I wanted to, and I wanted to be in Atlanta, that's where all my friends ended up, and the only job that I got was in Dallas, and so that's why I'm here. It's not because I wanna be here, because God was like, oh, go to Dallas. That's why I'm here. And the truth is, it's not random. He's in the details, and he has you here, he even has you in this room for a purpose. And he's intimately at work in the details of your life, of my life, just like he was in the story of Esther. He's at work in where you worked today or the career that you have. Like God is over all of those things. They are not random, biblically speaking. They're part of a plan that he's unfolding. I was at a restaurant in town called Taco Cinco, and, uh, which I think is the best chips and salsa in Dallas. I'm gonna go on record. I know that's, that's crazy, and I'm probably gonna get more emails about that comment right there than anything else that I say. But I was in there, and I was with a friend. We were eating lunch and uh, talking to the waitress. She came up, and she was serving us. Her name was Sarah, and began to ask Sarah, where are you from? And just kind of walked through, just getting to, to visit with her a little bit. And then at some point, I asked her, hey, what do you know about the name Sarah? And she said, I know it's Persian for princess. And um, I said, it does mean princess. Do you know where your name comes from? And she was like, Persia? And uh, I was like, it's from a book, actually, uh, the Bible. And she said, oh, yeah, 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 it's in the Bible. And uh, I said, what do you know about the story of Sarah? And I walked her through. She was a part of this covenant relationship that God had with the people uh, at that time through Abraham, her husband, and that Sarah was a part of that. And that covenant today has been fulfilled in Jesus and that anybody who trusts not in how good of a person they are, how bad of a person they are, but in what Jesus did on the cross, dying for them, paying for their sin, once and fully and finally, everything wrong they've ever done, paid for, he died in their place, and he rose, he was buried and rose from the dead, showing the payment for the sin of all mankind was more than enough. If anyone trusts in that free gift, not in themselves, they're gonna have eternal life and they're a part of that covenant people that God has invited all of us to be a part of. 
and I said something to her that, that is true. I, I said, you know what's crazy, Sarah? This is going to sound weird. You're going to think that's crazy. Is, um, I think God brought us here so that we could tell you that. And we could tell you he hadn't forgotten you. He knows your name. He cares about you, and he loves you. Biblically, that is incredibly true. Without question, true. We're told in Acts chapter 17 that God appoints the boundaries and the times in which people live, the moments, all of them. He's moving the pieces around. And in that moment, he's saying, hey, I'm going to bring you here to that person. And she looked at me and kind of had a face. And then I said, because we're angels. And no, I didn't say that at all. What if I did? <laughs> I, uh, and then just slowly vanished away. And... Uh, no, that part didn't happen. But God's over it. He's over even that moment of who's going to be at that table. And as God's people, we just have to have the eyes to see and to remember that he's moving the pieces all around. He's sovereign of the places they work. He's intimately at work in the details of your life. He's over even the fact that the king's heart chose her, that he wanted to have that relationship with her. The king, uh, we're told, he like falls in love with her. We're told in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 1, 21, verse 1, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, like rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. You know who's over the hearts of people around you? Like your boss's perception of you, whatever he thinks about you. You know who's over more of that than you are? Who has more control over that than you do? God. Whatever people's perception of you and the relationship and the way somebody feels towards you. You know who has more control over that than you do? God. More control over that than even they do? God. That he turns it and he's like, here, Esther, she's your girl. And you can walk in a confidence knowing that, man, hey, I can either try to always be defending myself and always concerned about what other people think about me, or I can walk knowing that, hey, God, you know everything that they feel. You know everything that they think. I'm going to trust you with the perceptions that ever have, others have of me. You're the king of hearts. And Esther experienced that king of hearts turning his heart because God is in the details. I remember there was a moment, and knowing that allows us to face things when it's like it doesn't look like he's clearly doing that here. I remember when I was dating my wife and we were in college and we came to that moment, kind of like ring by spring, where you're like, hey, are we going to move forward here or not? And, uh, and we were at a place where we just weren't ready for the relationship to move forward. And so we broke up. And that was terrible. Every breakup is horrible. And we had like dated well, relatively speaking. And it was brutal and it was painful. And we broke up for two years. And in those moments of when that was going down and happening, Especially initially, it was so painful. I'm like, God, what are you doing? We invested all this relational time. This is not something either of us wanted to experience, but we knew this is not the time to move forward and may never be. And two years went by and, and uh, became more of the time where God had the relationship move forward. But here's, despite the fact that I didn't want that to happen, I never would have thought that that would be God a part of that. My faith in those two years that we were separated grew like it had never grown in my entire life. I just started working here. I was going to seminary and studying. And the way that God just got a hold of my heart was unique compared to all the other years I've lived. And I look back and I think that's some of the most developmental time I've ever had. And that God was in the midst of all of that. I don't know what you're walking through. I don't know what you're facing. But I do know that God is at work in the details of your life. And then finally... God is at work through imperfect people. God is at work through imperfect people. The text, like, this may surprise you. Here's the challenge with Esther. 
A lot of people come in and they're like, dude, Esther, favorite girl in the whole Bible. Like, she's slay queen. She's the goals. She's, you know, she's my favorite. She's not in this chapter a great example of what to do. Like, like truly, uh, she's a girl. No one would say this is a recipe for success. You're going to marry a non-believer, have sex with them before you get married, along with like 400 other girls that have sex with them. And um, you're going to end up living regardless in his house and don't tell anybody about your faith. And you probably should be in Jerusalem anyways. She's not a recipe of, of someone to follow. But despite all of that, God is at work through imperfect people because he's always at work through imperfect people. How do I know that scripturally she wasn't supposed to have sex, even in the Old Testament? Exodus chapter 22 says that people, men and women, Esther, was not to have sex before marriage. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 2 and 4 said that you were not to marry people who did not worship the one true God, Yahweh. Matthew chapter 10 talks about, hey, anyone who does not acknowledge me before men, I will not acknowledge. So if you hide your faith, it's a reflection of a... uh, a weak faith that you're not to have. What's challenging or what is maybe a a result that, let me just clarify quickly, because in case that's shocking to you, it's probably because of a couple things. The first, uh, let me just high level teach like some of what the Bible is. The Bible has, has things involved in it that are stories that are descriptive and then things that are prescriptive. Prescriptive is like a prescription, do this. Descriptive is like, this is what happened, and it was crazy. And that happens all throughout the Bible. There's a lot of stories that are descriptive, not prescriptive. In other words, you should not do this type of thing. And then there's commands that are prescriptive, that are instructions on how to live, how to handle alcohol, sexuality, how to live your life, care for famine, how you should bring up your kids. Those are prescriptive. This is a story that is descriptive inside of Scripture. The second thing that may clarify why Esther is not a great example, at least in this chapter, and she's not, you know, the the good guy in this part of the story, at least, is a fundamental misunderstanding of what the Bible is. So this is is really important in case, like, you you tune me out and you're counting these little wood things over here. So come back. A lot of you guys don't read the Bible right. Like, you don't understand what it actually is. And I'm not trying to insult you. It's just true. You think the Bible is a book that's a bunch of, like, hey, there's some good people, and then there's some bad people, and you want to try to be like the good people. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible is a bunch of bad guys and one good guy named Jesus. And the bad guys are so bad, they kill the one good guy named Jesus. And so Esther, just like every other person in the Bible, is not one of the good guys. She's one of the bad guys, but God uses imperfect, broken, bad guys. And you may be going, what? That's not true. What about Noah? He built that ark, got all those animals on there. That was awesome. Noah, after he got done with that ark, found himself at sea, ended up being uh, dry land came eventually. You know, one of the first things we're told about Noah whenever he got off that ark, he built a vineyard and got hammered and he walked around naked and his kids were like, dad, this is gross. Oh my gosh. That's in the Bible. That's Noah. Abraham. Let's go to the next one. Abraham. Abraham pimps out his wife two different times. In other words, he's like, hey, I think they're going to kill me if I say you're my wife because you're a looker and they uh, may end up wanting to take you. So they'll kill me. So let's just say you're my sister. And his sister ends up being taken into the room of a king. Two different times the same exact story happened. Then he sleeps with the maid and gets her pregnant. Is that a guy that you're like, that's my hero right there. That's what I'm talking about. (laughs) King David, King David, man after God's own heart. Slay Goliath, lots of good things. He's a guy who has an affair, commits adultery with one of his closest friends, wives. And then she gets pregnant. And he's like, okay. And he can't get him 
his friend to come home to make it look like she got her pregnant, so he just kills his friend. And then you're like, yeah, everyone has a bad day. Let's go with that, okay? From his deathbed, King David, from his deathbed, you know what he asks his son to do? He puts out a hit on another guy's life. He's like, yeah, and by the way, I'm about to die, and I think you should kill that guy. That's a part of 1 Kings chapter 2, but David, as he's dying, puts a hit out like a mafia boss. It's not a bunch of stories about good guy and good guys and try to be like good guys. It's a story of a bunch of broken, messed up people, and God is the hero in the midst of the story, and Esther is no different. What Esther, because the interpretive challenge is then, dude, well, you can do whatever you want. You can sleep before marriage, marry whoever you want, and God can still use it to bring you about good. Two problems with that. One is that all of us are accountable for what you know. We don't know what Esther knew. We don't know if she had access to, uh, you know, Old Testament Bible. We don't know what she knew. But if you're in this room tonight, you've been exposed to the truth that God in the scriptures has called us to date in certain ways, live in certain ways, marry certain people, believers who share that same faith as you. James chapter four, verse seven says, he who knows the right thing to do and does not do it for him, it is sin. We do not know exactly all that Esther knew, but we know what you know. The second thing is in Esther doing that, she forfeited the story that could have showcased God working with people who follow his will in an incredible way. In other words, we wouldn't be sitting here 2,500 years later going, hey, and this is not exactly a great example to follow here. God can redeem anything, but this is not a recipe for success. We would be sitting here going, wow, look at her courage. Had she gone in and the king and said, hey, you took me away from my family, but I'm not going to have sex with you because I believe that sex is for marriage. So I'm going to sleep with my husband. Let's say the king didn't kill her there. And he's like, all right, man, feisty. You want what you can't have? Let's get married. And if she looked at him and said, no, I can only marry people who worship the one true God, maybe he would have said, get out of here, go home. Less exciting story. Maybe he would have said, tell me more. Maybe he would have converted to Judaism and worshiped the one true God. We have no idea. You know what happens when a king converts, a nation converts. It could have been an entirely different story. And she forfeited seeing God show up and be faithful to his promises and his people by her being obedient and faithful to him. Many of you are gonna forfeit seeing God show up in your life just like Esther did because you're not actually willing to be obedient and you're not gonna see him work. Two people came down in the last couple of weeks, different stories and both their lives, but they were in a similar circumstance. One was in a situation where they're like, hey, I'm living with my boyfriend. I just don't know what to do. You know, we've been talking about how that's not a great thing, but uh, I feel like maybe I should move out. The exact same story with somebody else was taking place. Both of them came down. One of them, and they both had hearts that were like, I, I, I think maybe I, I shouldn't be living with him. Will you pray for me? I'm scared. I just became a Christian, and I think I need to move out. Both of them were in that same place. One of them decided to actually act on that, and the other one decided to say, I know God says that's what I should do, but I don't care, and I'm just going to try to look the other way. And you know what she forfeited? One, marrying a godly husband, and two, at least being in that search if she doesn't change the direction of her dating scenario of continuing to live with the guy. And two, she forfeited seeing God show up. And the other girl decided, hey, I'm gonna do it and I'm scared and I've lived with him two and a half years, but I'm gonna make the decision to move out. And she saw God show up by the people of God coming around and God showed and provided a house. Hey, you can come live in this bedroom. 
She was concerned because she didn't have a car and she had to walk to work. And she was like, if I move to someplace else, how am I going to get to work? And then all of a sudden, the people of God are like, hey, you can use this car. And she got to see God at work in the midst of her obedience. When you and I forfeit and are disobedient to following God's way, you forfeit seeing God show up just like Esther in this story, forfeited getting to see God show up to save his people. In conclusion, God is always at work, even when it looks like he's not. He's at work in the details of your life right now. Who you are, the way that you look, the place that you live, he's at work. And God is at work and has always been at work through imperfect people. He is the hero of the book of Esther. He's the hero of the story. He's the hero of the entire Bible. And the point of Christianity is not how great any one of us is. It's that we have found a savior hero named Jesus. It's the point of Esther. It's the point of the whole story. He's the solution. He saves the queen. And he's the savior of anyone who will trust in him. Let me wrap up like this. The crazy thing about, you know, the the coronavirus thing, which is really not that bad, just FYI, in terms of symptoms, and and the flu is probably worse, but now I'm going to get an email on that from somebody in the medical community. <laughs> Crazy thing about that, I think, is that like uh, the contagiousness of it and two weeks being um, uh, dormant where you can't tell if somebody has it and just eventually the symptoms begin to pop up and you can see the virus that you can't see with the human eye, but you can see the presence and evidence of it showing up in somebody's life and just the ways that, that, um, you know, that it even spreads from there and how much craziness and just people obsessed about like, oh no, what are we going to do? And, uh, and we should do, should be wise and, you know, use Lysol and all that stuff. But there's a much more serious virus that likewise has also infiltrated into the human race. And it's a virus that you can see the evidence of it all around us. You can't always see the presence of it like infecting someone, but you can see the symptoms of the infection. And that is a virus called sin. And unlike the virus of a coronavirus that takes two in a hundred This is a virus that has killed 100 for 100 people. And there is a solution for it, but it is not some vaccine or some medical procedure. It is a savior named Jesus. What do I mean by like the symptoms of this virus that comes in? Like you can see, and even if you're not a Christian, listen to me very closely, you know there's messed up things in your life and in the lives of people around you that you you were like, dude, that's probably not right. You can see the evidence of the symptoms of this virus that come in and they begin to infect somebody and that infection leads to them being addicted to looking at naked pictures of men and women on the internet having sex together. Think about that. All of a sudden they're like, man, I just can't stop because of this virus has begun to infect. The virus, sometimes you see the evidence of like the infection in somebody's life and that they, they eat food and then they purge it up because they just hate the way that they look and they're reaching for control and they can't face this life they're having something they can control, and it's because that infection, those are just symptoms of the virus of sin that is there. That virus is the reason why many of you, like my home, was ripped apart through parents divorcing because sin came in, and you didn't see it exactly all the way come in, but you saw the evidence of it and the destruction take place. Evidence of the virus you can see around us in the ways that racial division still marks so many people inside of our country. Evidence of the virus in my life, I can see through sexual desires for people who are not my wife, anger, greed that can mark my heart, selfishness that doesn't care about people, the way that God says I'm to care about people, 
and it's all symptoms of the virus. But here's the good news. Unlike in that scenario with the coronavirus, there isn't really a solution to the virus. There is one for this. And there's a solution to the symptoms in your life, but it is not you trying harder or you reading some book. It is you trusting in a savior. And when you do that, that savior begins to promise you will one day be delivered from the penalty of sin and that virus and the presence of sin will one day forever be gone. And this world will rise again just like Jesus rose from the dead and it will be healed. And now you can begin to experience freedom from the power of sin because the Holy Spirit begins to come into your life and save and purge everything that's hurting you from your life and everything that's hurting me. There is one savior, one hero, one solution to the disease that is far more deadly than anything our world has ever seen. And many of you have never trusted in that. And tragically, you think that you can save yourself. You think that you can, through whatever you do, earn a relationship with God and you have bought a lie. And you feel like you need to clean yourself up a little bit or get things together and then God, you know, work on your relationship and, you know, just read a little bit more Bible and then you'll get there and you have bought a bunch of BS. One of the greatest lies our world has bought specifically in America, is that good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. Biblically, forgiven people go to heaven. And there's one way to get forgiveness. His name is Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the story of Esther. It showcases when we can't see you, you're working. You work in imperfect, broken people. You bring about your purposes, Nothing can thwart your hand, your plans, your sovereign, and your good. And you invite us who know you to call you Father. I pray for anyone tonight who's never trusted in Jesus. This would be their night. And the Savior of Esther would be the Savior of them. Thank you that you made a way. You're the ultimate God who just opens doors and saves his people in spite of themselves. Would you help us to not forfeit seeing you show up by us choosing to be obedient and walk with you, God? We love you. We worship you in song. Amen.